Israel. It began when he was a shepherd and God had uh, uh, shown his favor to him and raised him up. And we all remember that uh, the Israelites were in the battle with the Philistines and uh, Goliath was there and everybody was afraid to to go out and and to uh, you know go against him in battle and and uh, you know eventually David had gone to see what was going on with his brothers and uh, you know we know the story that David went on to to slay Goliath and he continued on and and God continued to build him up and raise him up in Israel in the kingdom of Israel and showed him favor and uh, eventually to the point where the king at that time who was King Saul. Uh, began to get pretty jealous of what was going on. Uh, so David had then come to the point where he was commanding the armies and he would go out into battle and they would win the battles and he would come back. Uh, and, um, you know, all the people in Israel were, were so uh, grateful and happy about what was going on with David and the victories that they saw, how God had worked in David, that they would, when they would come back into town, the people would all, uh, you know, say things like... Uh, uh, Saul had had slayed his thousands. David had slayed his tens of thousands, and Saul didn't like that at all. Uh, so he got uh, jealous to the point where he began to pursue David uh, uh, to try to kill him. He didn't want him to be. He knew what was happening. He saw where it was going. He knew that eventually David was going to be the one to take his place. Uh, so eventually, the jealousy built up so much, and the hatred that uh, Saul was pursuing him to to kill him. Uh, well, God accomplished his purposes, and, and eventually uh, David, after a period of time, uh, was uh, put in place as the king of Israel. And, and this is what we're talking about today. Uh, there, there's, there is some uh, debate about when the psalm that we're looking into was written for sure, but uh, it is widely held that what David is saying, what he is singing in this moment in the psalms, is what he was singing at the moment where he was put in place as the king of Israel. We all understand that the, the psalms are songs. That's what we're talking about. Uh, when, we're, when we're talking about psalms, we're not talking about... The, psalm, the book of psalms doesn't have chapters. We're not in chapter 101. It's, it's basically the same as if we hand you a hymn book and say, turn to number 101. That's what we're talking about here. We have a, a, a different, a, a lot of collections of songs that are collected in the book of Psalms. And that's what we're looking into today. But this is what, uh, after that whole period of, of God raising up David and him having to uh, flee from Saul and, and all of that that was going on, finally coming to the moment where God ordained that David would take over uh, and become the king of Israel, this is where we're at. This is what was in his heart. This is what he was singing in those moments. Uh, so Psalm 101, starting in verse 1, it says, I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing in praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When, you will, when will you come to me? I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. Men of perverse hearts shall, shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, him I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He whose walk is blameless will minister to me. 
No one who practices deceit will be will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Uh, so the first thing I, I want to point out as we read this is the heart behind this. Because sometimes when we read things like that, when we read... Uh, you know, I will have nothing to do with faithful, with, with faithless men. I will hate them. I, they will not cling to me. People with perverse heart will be far from me. I will cut off evildoers from the city. When we read things like that, we immediately attribute to it a tone of judgment. Now, he is making a judgment based on the things he's seeing around him, but it's coming from a heart that desires to see God. It's coming from a heart that is sensitive to the things of God. It's not it's not this just stoic man who has now become king and has authority and I just want to rip apart everybody around me. That's not where this is coming from. It's coming from a heart where David wrote in uh, Psalm 63, he said, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as, as with richest of foods. With singing of my lips, my mouth will praise you. And that's exactly how he starts this. He says, I will sing of your love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing. So my point is that in the beginning we have to understand that this psalm comes from the heart of somebody who is longing after the presence of God. It is a heart that is sensitive. It is a heart that is fixed on the love of God, the justice of God. You can't separate the two. We understand that the, the judgment that we see coming from him, what he's saying, we'll look at it in a little more here in a minute, but when he says, people of perverse heart, I will cut off the evildoers from the land, that comes from a heart that is sensitive to the things of God because you can't separate the love of God from the justice of God. You can't separate the love of God from the righteousness of God. We have a tendency today to, to want to separate those things. You have groups where the only thing they ever want to do is love and accept everything that everybody ever does. You have other groups that will just, they just want to talk about the righteousness and justice of God and they will rip everybody apart and keep a list of everything everybody has always done wrong and they will hold that list. There, there has to be a place in the middle where we understand Number one, that God is just, that He's not okay with sin, that He wants us to come out of a life of sin and be empowered through His Spirit to live above the power of sin reigning in our hearts, but He does that as a loving Father. He calls us to that as a loving Father. He calls us to point out things, to, to look on those who are evil in the land and have nothing to do with their evil acts. He calls us to that out of love. Because he loves us, because he doesn't want that for us. But you see, we don't have to. We don't have to. When when somebody around us is doing something evil, we don't have to. Uh, our desire should still be when we communicate to somebody that they are doing something that is evil. Our desire should be to communicate that with a heart that is sensitive to God and His love. Meaning that when I speak to somebody, when I tell them. Whatever you're pursuing is evil, and I can't have anything to do with that. It comes from a heart that desires to see them restored to God, or come to know God, or come to know the freedom that is in God. It comes, it comes from all of that. 
Setting ourselves apart from evil. Setting ourselves apart from those who are faithless and pursuing those who pursue perverse things. When we set ourselves apart from that, that is the best hope of somebody seeing that there is something different in you and wanting to know God. Wanting to know the freedom that is in God. There is a greater hope in us doing that in love, setting ourselves apart in love and telling somebody, you know, I love you, but I can't take part in the things you're doing. Pursuing it that way gives greater hope than us just accepting that anything that everybody ever does and hoping eventually that they see something and want to know God. But what I'm saying in all of this is David's heart was not just a matter of being a king and now I have all this authority and I'm going to find the people that are doing wrong. Though he said he was going to pursue and cut off those who were evil, it, it came from a heart that was sensitive to the things of God. It came from a heart that desired to know God. It came from a heart, as we read in the Bible, it says, blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. All of those things. That was the heart. You see, somebody who is meek can still speak out of the power of God to a situation that is evil, you can speak in your meekness. You can still speak as a peacemaker. You can still speak as somebody who your words are seasoned by the love of God. So that is the point of what we are getting at here. Uh, so, but overall, what I want to talk about today, that wasn't, that wasn't what I wanted to talk about. Uh, so I, I apologize for that. Uh, what I want to talk about today, though, is that, that heart that is sensitive to God and what David is saying, then, that his influence would be over his kingdom, the kingdom that God has entrusted to him. Now, as we read this, obviously we're not kings. We're not over some sort of kingdom in this world. We have a priestly role as in God's kingdom, but we are not in the same position exactly as David was, but as I've said before, we have to understand that every single one of us has influence. Every one of us sitting here has some sort of influence. Every single person in here, I don't care how young or old you are, somebody is seeing what you are doing. There's somebody over whom you have the ability to speak either life or show them life in God or show them, as David talks about, the perversity of faithless. Uh, living in the things that they pursue. We have the opportunity, though, to influence people for eternity, whether positive or negative. We have the opportunity, every single one of us. There's not one person that's excluded from that. Uh, so as we read of how David would conduct his kingdom, he starts, though, by saying uh, in, verse, um, in verse 2, he says, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct affairs, the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. So the thing that we have to understand in our influence, in our walk with God, in our pursuit of God, is every single thing that happens in our walk begins at home. He says, I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. Everything that is done in my house, I will pursue all of those things. I will pursue a blameless heart in my endeavors. Everything that I do in my house, every affair, everything that happens in my house, I will pursue a blameless heart in those things. And what that says to us is that this Christian faith, everything that we do here means nothing 
if it is only expressed publicly. Because it's a lot easier for us to come here where people see us for an hour a week or two hours a week or maybe three hours a week and to put on the smiling face and everything's great. And to say all the Christian, I mean a lot of us have been in, Christ, in, in church our whole lives. Or if not, a lot of us have been in the church long enough that we know the right answers. So when a situation comes up in the church, I can just recite all the knowledge that I have. But then I get home, and things are a lot different. When you get home and you start to react to situations the wrong way. Just for instance here, let's, let's, I want to show you this quickly. This is just one, one instance. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, this is talking about wives and husbands. Now, now, none of this, when I'm talking about this starts at home, I am saying that it doesn't matter. I'm not saying, it doesn't matter if you have a family, it doesn't matter if you're single, it doesn't matter how young or old. What I am saying is when you were at home, away from people, when you were at home by yourself, when you were at home away from the church world where you know all the right answers, when you're in the difficult situations, I can't remember, I think it was a book called, uh, um, what is that book, The Sacred Marriage? Is that what the book was we read? Uh, Sacred Marriage, but it was a book, it was talking about how marriage is not about, uh, uh, basically it's not about your happiness, but your holiness. Marriage is more about you becoming holy than you being happy. Uh, but it was, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but he was basically talking about how marriage is the great searchlight in life that searches the depths of your soul and it will reveal the best and the worst of you. Right? Maybe it's just me that it reveals the best and the worst of. Uh, but this because there's no other relationship like it. And not just marriage, but your children. They see the best and the worst of you. Or your family. Maybe, maybe you're not married, you, but you have close family, and they see more of you than the people here on Sunday morning see of you. And the point is that at, when I, we're talking about being at home, at home, away from all of this, away from the place where you know the right answers, the place where you are confronted with situations and you feel comfortable enough to react based on what is actually in your heart. And we're close enough with family that they just have to accept it to some extent, right? Because you're stuck with me. You married me, you're stuck with me. Right? <laughs> uh, but uh, Ephesians 5. But this is, this is the significance of, of the responsibility we have at home. Uh, starting in verse 21, it says, Submit... Submit to one another. This is talking about marriages, but again, our influence at home by ourselves with family. This, this applies, the principles apply, not just in marriage, but any close relationship. Uh, but this is talking specifically about marriage. But it says in verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, that's a pretty humbling call, isn't it? We're not going to stop there, men. We're going to go on. But women, that's a pretty humbling call, isn't it? To be able to look on the faults 
of your husband and be able to submit to them uh, as they pursue God, as, as they try to figure out how to lead their household uh, and conduct the affairs of their house with a blameless heart. That's, sometimes we stumble in that. But as wives, being able to submit to them and encourage them in that. Encourage them even when they have failed. Encourage them to continue on. Not ripping them down, but being able to build them up and encourage them to be the person that leads them. Being submissive to that. But then, man, it goes on. We would like sometimes if it stayed there, right? But it doesn't. Verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You see, women, we're not talking... You have the call to be submissive to a husband and encourage him and, and help him along in that process, but you realize the greater responsibility is on the man. You understand what it's saying there? You understand how how humbling that call is. It says, husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He hung on a cross for the church. He was beaten for the church. He was spit on for the church. He humbled Himself even to death on the cross for the church. And we are to love our wives the same way Christ loved the church. And it goes on from there. Why did He do that? He gave Himself up for the church. And then in verse 26 it says, To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the Word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So what he is saying then is wives be submissive, but husbands, you love your wives like Christ loved the church in order that you would present her. Someday you would present her before God without stain or wrinkle or blemish. Maybe, again, maybe it's just me, but that's pretty humbling to consider that that is my responsibility in my household. My responsibility in my house is to conduct myself in a way that would lead my wife to be laid before Christ as a bride who is stain-free, wrinkle-free, blemish-free, and holy. Now, if you take that serious, that better lead us to do some serious soul searching to figure out how we react at home. Is that what I actually do? Is that my goal? And I'm not saying you're never going to have a, make a mistake, that you're never going to fall, or you're never going to have a moment where you say something dumb that you shouldn't have. Men, you know we're going to have those moments. But the point is, what do you do with it? Do you justify it? Do you figure out why it's okay? Or do you move forward in God? Number one, there, you know there are a lot of people in the world that have no ability whatsoever to say sorry. There are some people in this world that I don't care what you do or how much they know they're wrong, they will never ever say sorry. It doesn't matter. There is no way that you can function that way. And live up to what we just read there. You cannot function. Men, we better figure out how to be able to say, I'm sorry. And actually mean it. Because of the responsibility that we have. Uh, 
But again, I don't want you to limit this just to a marriage relationship. This goes beyond that. This goes to our children that we have not just with our wives, but then I would think it still goes, you know, moves, progresses on towards our children that we are to raise them up uh, in a way that they would know the holiness of God, that they would know the things of God, that they would know that what, what God desires of them, that they would know not, not a parent that is perfect, not a parent that never fails, but a parent who is able to say, yeah, I messed up. But here's what God desires of me, and here's where I am aspiring to be. Here's where I am going. Whether I fall or not, I am going to get up and continue walking here. See, kids don't, it, it's not a matter of them seeing perfection in, in us. It's a matter of them seeing somebody who is willing to get up and continue on towards the goal. Somebody who's able to model in life because our kids are going to fail at some point. They're going to do things. They're going to make mistakes. They need to see in us people who are able to make mistakes and get up and continue walking on. Continue pressing on, not making excuses, but continue on towards the goal. Being built up in Christ and reflecting who He is. That is a significant responsibility. So He says, I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. And then that goes on again if you're single. It doesn't matter if maybe you don't have a family. Maybe you, you go home and maybe you live by yourself at this point where God has you in life. You still have people around you that you interact with that are close to you. You still have the opportunity to influence them. And conducting the affairs of my house, it may not, maybe you don't have anybody that you interact with, but still the, the decisions you make when you are by yourself and nobody's around. I will conduct the affairs of my house, even if it's just me in my house. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. That means that my goal in everything in my house is to glorify God and lift Him up and for Him to be exalted in every decision that I make in my house. Uh, so we have to understand what, what He is saying when He says, I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart is that everything that I do, all of my interactions, in all things that I should have a concern for my relationship with God, holding it in the highest esteem above everything else, always mindful of the things that may corrupt your walk with Him. That's where David goes on. We're going to talk about this, but that's where he goes on to talk about the things that he will not take in part in because he is aware of the things that may corrupt his walk. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart, but here's all the, here are all these things that I'm going to avoid because they will corrupt the way that I handle my house. As I allow myself to take part in these things that he's going to go on the list that we'll talk about, as I take part in those things, that will inevitably influence my house and how I conduct my heart before God in that. But he goes on, uh, 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 we need to be always mindful of the things that corrupt our walk with him. Uh, The pulpit commentary said this of uh, what David was saying in Psalm 1. He said, Piety will have a supreme supreme concern for its own purity. Uh, It will guard its heart most carefully against everyone and everything that would hurt or defile. It will eliminate the thoughts which stain the soul. It will burn the books which pollute the mind. It will not allow anything which is unholy or unworthy of a Christian disciple, to enter the sanctuary of the soul. I will know how to be merciless to the flesh, that it may be true to the Spirit. Uh, 
And I loved how he said that. He said, it will know true, true pursuit of God, true religion, true understanding of God will know how to be merciless to the flesh that it may be true to the Spirit. Sometimes we make a lot of provisions for, our, uh, for the sinful nature of men. Sometimes we have no idea how to be merciless to our flesh. As human beings, we're good at being merciless to other people sometimes. You know, it's, it's, it's very easy for us to sit back and, and uh, label everybody, even just talking in the church, it's easy for us to sit back and label everybody in the church as this, well, this person's, uh, uh, you know, this person is, uh, has anger problems, or this person is a liar, or this person is uh, this or that, or whatever it is. We have all these labels that we put on people, yet we uh, allow so much mercy to our own flesh. He's saying we need to figure out how to be merciless to the flesh so that I can be true to the Spirit. That, that is me. It, so what I am saying is that sometimes people are gossips or liars or all these things. That, that's what they do. Even in the church there are people that do that. But what we are saying here is we cannot push these things off. We have a habit of doing that. We, we push everything off to everybody else. It's just theory that we hear. If the church would be like this then everything would be fine. If the church would be like this, or they would do this, then everything would be fine, and we would start growing. You understand that that starts in me. We can't just think of it as the whole, because it starts in me first. It starts in you first. And then we start talking about the collective church. But it doesn't happen collectively as a church. We don't walk above reproach. Above reproach. We don't conduct the affairs of our house. That's not just a church-wide thing. That starts in me, and then we see a church as a whole, a gathering of saints who conduct the affairs of their house with a blameless heart. It starts in me. We can't just push this off on other people. And we have, it's, it's such an easy thing for us to fall into hearing all of these words or hearing the principles of God and then just thinking, yeah, that'd be great if the church would do that. It would be great if the church would do that. So I better start figuring out how to do it. And we make the decision personally. I don't care what anybody else is doing. Maybe I'm in a church where nobody else wants to do that. Nobody else is going to do that. I still make the decision to do it. I cannot make anyone else do anything. You can't make anyone else do anything. I think that was one of the things in the book we read about marriage. You know that whether it's a marriage relationship or a family relationship that, that, is, that has tension in it, you cannot make someone else do anything. We can talk about things in the church. We can talk about theories. We can talk about programs or how, what it should look like, but we can't make anyone do anything. It takes people deciding, resolving today, in their hearts, that I want to follow God. I don't care who goes with me and who doesn't. I'm going to walk in this. And hopefully in that, then somebody will see my influence and want to come along with me. And then the church is built together in Christ out of that. Um, He says we have to be merciless to the flesh that we may be true to the Spirit. Proverbs 4.23 says this. Why should we be merciless to the flesh? Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do 
flows from it. I am merciless to my flesh because I understand that everything of the flesh, everything around me that I allow, uh, you know, the profane things around me, uh, the, the things that God has ordained to be sacred but the world has made profane, when I allow them to be set before me, uh, I allow them to influence me, that is finding its way into your heart, whether you recognize it or not. There is something about it that is, is, is storing itself up in your heart. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. The Bible says a good man brings good things out of the good that is stored up in his heart and evil things out of the evil that is stored up in his heart. Whether you think you are or not, when we allow the profane things, the, the things that God has ordained as sacred, but the world has made profane, when we allow them to be set before our eyes, we are storing those things up in our hearts. And the Bible says, guard your heart, because everything, everything that you do, everything that you, you are, everything that comes out of your mouth flows from your heart. What I'm saying is, we better be concerned about what we are storing up in our hearts. That is why there's such a concern about the things that we set before our eyes. And we're going to go on. It says uh, in, in uh, 101, the beginning of verse 3, Psalm 101, he says, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. He says that because he understands the nature of his heart. He understands the nature of the things that we set before us. We can't just look and view things and we can't participate with uh, faithless men and in, 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 uh, acknowledge their endeavor, endeavors and accept those things. We can't do that without that affecting our hearts. We're storing those things up, whether you realize it or not. I will not look on anything that is vile. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. Now, you may be in a situation, you may walk in uh, at some point in this world with as corrupt as things are around us, you may find yourself in a situation at some point where something vile happens around you that you had no control over. The point is, what do you do with that? What do you do with that when something is set before you? Do you look on it with approval? Or do we have nothing to do with it? Do we do everything with our power to change the situation, or to be away from the situation, or to, to turn our eyes from the situation, because uh, if you read in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 22, it says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Uh, and what we're saying, what, what Jesus was saying in that, is that the body tends to... to acclimate itself to what it sees when we when when we I, I mean the mind does crazy things whether we realize it or not the mind the mind uh the mind interacts with the world around us in ways that we normally don't think about or even understand now I, maybe this is a dumb example but but you you uh uh you know, you step on a board or something and it breaks beneath you and your body starts to try to balance itself. That starts in your mind. Your mind reacts to that. So your mind is, is acclimating itself to the situations around you. The situation that you're placed in, even if it's unexpected, your mind acclimates itself to whatever's happening in a moment. 
So as we continually allow ourselves to be set before things, or something to be set before me, my eyes being light of my body, constantly see these things, and my body begins to acclimate to what I am allowing to be set before the light of my body. Now the point is, as Christians, understanding how serious we should take our heart, how serious the call to guarding our heart should be, that I would gaze, fix my gaze, fix my eyes, fix my sight on the things of God, and never allow that to be turned, that my body then would be acclimated to the things of God. As the lamp of my body, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eyes are healthy, your whole, your whole body will be full of light. As I fix the lamp of my body on the things of God, the Bible says that we should set our minds, our hearts on things above where Christ is seated with God. As I fix the gaze of my soul on that, my body starts to be acclimated to the things of God that my eyes are fixed on. Because the lamp of my body is not lighting up all of these vile things around me and looking on it with approval. But the thing that is constantly set before my eyes are the sacred things of God, the character of God, the person of Christ, understanding who He is and trying to walk in humility as He did. When that is my focus, the rest of my heart and my body will continue to acclimate itself to that over time. Uh, but we have to actively avoid the things that corrupt our spirit. Uh, it should be a constant thought. It should be a constant desire to to avoid the things that corrupt uh, our souls. He says uh, in uh, in verse three, Psalm one hundred one, verse three, the last half of verse three. He says, "I w- I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part in it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil." Uh, so what he is saying then is, I will not hold in high esteem those who are faithless and the things that they pursue. I will have nothing to do with those who accommodate ungodly things. He goes on in verse 5, he says, Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. Uh, Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Uh, And the pulpit commentary said this on that, Gossip is the slanderer's weapon. Malice is his inspiration and self-conceit is his guide. Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. You understand that there is a call biblically for us as the people of God to silence those who would seek to spread discord by slandering others. We have a call to that. Now, we live in a day where people want to avoid uh, any sort of conflict. I don't like conflict. Nobody does. It's not fun. You understand that in that moment where somebody brings something to us, our desire that should override a desire to avoid conflict, our desire should be to please God in that moment and hold together the integrity of the unity of His people. 
That should be our greater desire. And this, I think this is such a problem in the American church today. I'm not saying here again. I'm thankful that I haven't been here long enough to know what some of those problems at every church are here. I'm not speaking here. I'm talking in general in the American church. There is such a problem. We never get to our actual mission because we are too busy talking to each other about all the things we don't like. It's everywhere. All the things that we don't like, we feel like we need to tell everybody about it. And figure, we tell everybody about the people that need to know. That's the amazing part about it. All the people, the, the, the people that can actually are in a position to do something about it never hear, or when they hear, it's come from four or five people along the way until it finally gets to them. You understand, that's one of those things where we can't talk about this as theory in the church. If, if the church would stop slandering, that would be great. It's not just on the person that, that is, is performing the act. It's not the person who is, is uh, uh, you know, telling everybody about everything they don't like or this person or what they're doing and how terrible it is and all that. It's also on the person who receives it, who accepts it. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to rip somebody apart about bringing it to you. You just say, you know what, I, my desire is to see the church united. We can pray for this person. Uh, I can tell you who needs to know this. You, you can go talk to this person. They would know better how to deal with it. Send the person to the right person who can actually do something about it. Or redirect them to the unity of ch- the church and guiding them, influencing them to understand uh, that we should be walking together as the church, not ripping each other down, uh, but building each other up. And sometimes, I, I think there are some situations where somebody doesn't necessarily, it's not their desire to slander, but they don't feel comfortable going uh, to the right person to deal with the situation. Uh, maybe they feel timid or, or just don't feel comfortable doing that. But again, at some point, if you have a legitimate concern about something, you got to be able to get over the fear and understand that it is promoting the welfare of the church when somebody gets over that uh, uneasy feeling and goes to the right person in Christian love to try to deal with it. This isn't a little issue. This is, this is one of Satan's ways of destroying the church. Is that he keeps us just constantly fighting with each other. And we can never actually accomplish anything for God because we're always just trying to put out fires and personality conflicts. Uh, but David said, whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. Those who are arrogant, prideful, who look down on others, I will not tolerate. Uh, understanding, I will not tolerate that. I won't accept uh, looking down on others because I understand that in the kingdom of God, in, in God's reign, as Him Him being the creator, there is no human being that has more or less value than another human being. In God's eyes, of course, he's, he's the, the, those who don't accept Him are going to uh, accept eternal separation from Him. But God's desire, He sent Christ to die for them just as much as He did for us. Now that doesn't mean that they're, gonna, they, they're choosing not to accept the salvation that's available in Him. That's their own choice. But God has made it available to them the same as He did to us. So it is such a profane to thing to have a haughty, haughty eyes that look down on other people because God 
in God's eyes before the cross, there is a level playing field. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what you don't have. I don't care how much money, how many, how many people know you. None of that matters. Before the cross, at the foot of the cross, there is a perfectly level playing field in the eyes of God. That is why it is such a, 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 a negative thing for the people of God to, uh, if we would choose to have haughty eyes and arrogant eyes and prideful eyes and look down on other people, because we're to be taking on the character of Christ and walking as He did. Um, If the church is ever to move forward, there's a lot more I wanted to say about this. Um, I got away from my notes, so I'm kind of all over the place. Um, But if we are ever to move forward as the church, it takes individuals the individuals who compose the church making a decision. As I said before, I know I've said this, but it is so, it is of the utmost importance that an individual says, Today I am making the decision to move forward in Christ. Today I am making the decision to conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. Today I make the decision to conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. And if I make a mistake in that, I will get up and continue on in the pursuit of conducting my house with a blameless heart. We'll take an individual who resolves themselves to set their hearts on things above, that the gaze of my soul would be set on things above where Christ is seated with God in heaven. That would be what I fix my eyes on. It's not about the people around you. There's nobody else in the room but you right now. Think about what the gaze of your soul is. No matter what anyone else is doing, is your mind set on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? You see, we, we're, as the worship team comes up, we'll end with this. Um, we, we're, we're good at talking about uh, wanting to see things change, especially in our culture today. And things need to change. I don't think it's sustainable the way things are going or where it's headed. You see, that's that's another thing where we just kind of take these big ideas and apply it to everybody else and say it'd be great if we could get back to this or if we would just do this. Uh, reading a book called Celebration of Discipline. We're going through that on Wednesday nights. And uh, uh, he said in this book, he said, Leo, Leo Tolstoy said this, everybody thinks of changing humanity and nobody thinks of changing himself. Let us be among those who believe that their inner transformation of lives is a goal worthy of our best effort. Everybody thinks of changing humanity. Everybody thinks about how everything around them needs to be different. But that starts in me. It starts in me making a decision to walk in Christ, to take 
every day step by step with Him, with my eyes fixed on Him. That is the only, uh, only way Christians will actually have a powerful influence with the world around them. There's nothing else. You, we cannot, I don't care what, what we say, I don't care how many uh, times we tell people the things we don't agree with, that, it's not going to matter if we're not walking in the power of God with our eyes fixed on Him. If we aren't individually in our homes desiring to conduct the affairs of our house with a blameless heart, if it is not starting there, you can be sure it's not going to trickle down on the people around you. It's not going to happen. We want to see people be changed in our culture. We want to see the culture be different. I guarantee you it's going to be a long road. But we're not going to get there unless someone and some people make a decision that I'm going to start this in my home and allow it then to flow out of that into the people around me. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and light on my path. And 106, he says, I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. So he's saying the principles of God, the things that God has laid out in his word, they are a lamp to light my path. And I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I've taken an oath and confirmed it. I love this in Daniel chapter 1. It says the king has signed... Uh, this was when uh, Daniel was carried off in exile uh, from Jerusalem to uh, Babylon. And it says, uh, they were in Babylon at this, at this moment. It says, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah the tri- of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now the first thing we understand is that they gave them new names because they were trying to acclimate them to the things of Babylon. He renamed them with Babylonian names. As soon as they got there, first chapter of Daniel, he gave them new names, Babylonian names. In verse 8 he says, But Daniel resolved himself that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So in that moment, Daniel was resolving himself that to whatever extent he could, he would keep himself separated from the culture of the Babylonians. If he could get away with not eating their food, if he could get away with with, uh, not acclimating himself to that part of their lifestyle, he would do it. Whatever he could to avoid... Uh, just just pouring himself into this culture and accepting his position. He was carried away in, in uh, exile. But whatever, to whatever extent he could, he would keep his eyes fixed on God. Uh, the king was... These men were, were uh, brought into to the king to, to uh, do good things for their kingdom. The king wanted to use Daniel and those, those other guys with him to, to do things in his kingdom, to give them responsibilities. So these guys left in exile, and they're in this place, uh, and the king is going to use them in his kingdom. They're not going to be slaves. They're going to do things for the king, have responsibilities. They were educated. They were going to do things for the king. But David, in spite of uh, seeing that he could have had it a lot better than the others who were carried off in, uh, in exile, in spite of that, he's, he's resolving himself not to be defiled by the culture of the people around him. 
And again, what I'm saying in this, in the end, as we close today, is that it takes somebody making a decision. Somebody resolving themselves. Somebody taking an oath and confirming that, that I see that God's laws are the lamp to my feet and light to my path. And I have taken an oath that I will walk in that path. This isn't about other people. This is about me. This is about you individually. And out of that then we start talking about the church. But it all begins, as, as David said, I will conduct the affairs of my house, my house, not somebody else's house, my house. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. If you want to come today, if there's anything that you need to deal with, anything you want to pray about, you can come to this altar and, and we'll leave you to pray by yourself. If you would like to do that, you can come over here. Somebody will pray with you. God, we thank you today for the opportunity again to look into your living word to know that your word has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. All of the principles that you have laid out are powerful, are able, to, uh, are, are able to search the depths of our soul, are able to cut away the things within us that separate us from you or keep us at a distance from you. Father, help each one of us to have a powerful, a powerful resolve in your spirit, to walk in your ways, to never turn to the right or the left but that we would take spiritual responsibility for ourselves individually and then our families and out of that then for your church. Father, we love you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand.